This episode is about something that was on front page in primetime news, actually quite a lot, but then it kind of disappeared. I'm referring to dire analyses and predictions of a lurking recession. Predicting a stock market doesn't really tell you whether you're going to have a recession very easily or not, because I think most people have found that stock market downturns uh, predict like 14 out of the last three recessions. So <laughs> they predict 14 recessions, but only three occur. He worked on Wall Street for 20 years, and then he got into astrology, and he was charting things, and he had, he had a newsletter, and people were buying his stuff and things like that. Um, now, that may not be entirely insane, uh, but, you know, you used to have sunspot stories, right? They say, oh, the economy's responding to sunspots. And it sounds really stupid until you realize that sunspots might influence agricultural cycles. If, if like well, I told you during the break, if, if I could predict this, I'd be living on an island. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be flying back and forth to wherever I wanted to go. Uh, we'll still reach you there and we'll do a podcast uh, from exactly, your island. Exactly. And so... Most times, up until that time, the typical pattern was to have a recession about once every three to seven years. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, a lot of people forget about how bad the late 70s, early 80s were. When we had, when we had um, you know, we had both high unemployment and high inflation at the same time. Did you know that in the 1960s, economists believed that they had a firm handle on how the economy works? Or in the words of my guest, they thought they had it licked. But boy, were they wrong. Because things got really bad in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. As an example, home mortgages were as high as 18%. But since then, we've enjoyed long intervals without a recession. Which makes you wonder, what's ahead? a continued, uninterrupted stretch of economic growth and very low unemployment, or a deep and long recession. Hey there, news peelers. Today is July 14th, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. On July 4th, I stumbled on an interesting Wall Street Journal article. It had the following attention-grabbing headline. The rich session keeps rolling. <laughs> Let me read that again. The rich session keeps rolling. After reading the article, I realized what they meant by rich session. What's happening is that richer Americans cannot as readily increase their wages, and they also see business profits sack. And although layoffs are happening, 
they are mostly affecting higher earners. And here's the thing, overall layoffs are still low and more people are now working than before the pandemic. So what does all of this mean? Are we headed towards a recession or not? Here's an excerpt from a June 4th Wall Street Journal article. Quote, Economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal in April put the probability of a recession at some point in the next 12 months above 50%. But they have said that since October, and the recession appears <laughs> no closer. End quote. So, in other words, no one really knows, not even the experts. To better understand the history of America's recessions, their frequencies, intensities, and durations, and our attempts to predict and prevent them. I spoke with Dr. Price Fishback, an APS professor of economics at Eller College of Management in the University of Arizona. Dr. Fishback is also a research affiliate at the Center for Economic History at Australian National University, a Cage Fellow at Warwick University, a program scholar for the Hoover Program on Regulation and the Rule of Law, and a Fellow at the TIAA Kreff Institute, and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, which most of us know as the MBER. He is also the author of many peer-reviewed publications and books, including the following book, Government and the American Economy, A New History. To learn more about Dr. Fishback, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Fishback and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Fishback, it's a pleasure to have you on our program again. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So let's get right into it. What is a recession? I mean, how's it defined? Well, so there are a lot of different definitions of recession. The official definitions these days tend to be done by the National Bureau of Economic Research. And so MBER? Yeah, MBER. Okay. And so they have a group of economists who get together and they do these uh, kind of business cycle dating. Uh, they use a lot of different series and time series to try to make the decision. Um, and so it, it's not always easy to tell exactly what they're saying. So one thing about the recession. <laughs> Boy, if you say that, then what? Well, well, no, let me say it this way. It's not yeah. quite as easy to see exactly what they're looking at when they're making the decision about the recession. Okay. And so one thing about the recession, the way they define it, is that the recession is... Um, you're starting at some kind of peak and then you're dropping down and the recession ends when you hit the bottom. Okay, and so when you're starting back up again, that's the next expansion. So they tend to be somewhat behind what's actually happening because they're trying to figure out the turning points and things along those lines. So sometimes you're seeing still high unemployment and things like this and the NBER says that the recession is over. <laughs> that's because they're talking about that you're, you're on that you're on the rise again and so that that's one thing a little bit tricky about that um when you said uh from for example peak to bottom is that what you mean by time series like a time window well that'd be a time window in a time series so like a time series is just uh, a series of data that run over time mm -hmm. and so when you're looking at business cycles and recessions uh, you're looking for, well, the, the 
the growth period or the boom or wherever starts from the bottom, starts from the trough and then goes to a peak, right? Whereas the bust or the recession starts at the top and then starts going down. And so one of the reasons they're kind of late in calling recessions is that they need to see if that really is a turning point or is that just a, just a short blip before it kind of goes back up again. Yeah. You said there are different definitions of recession and you keyed on MBER in which you're a member. So what are That's the one that is most commonly used or described when they're talking about it in the press. Uh, There are other definitions of recession. So so one that was pretty common and actually kind of, it's easier to see because you don't have to worry about multiple time series. Uh, Some people say a recession occurs when you have two straight quarters when GDP is negative, when GDP growth is negative. I've heard that. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's, that's not a bad measure either. I mean, so, and, ma- and those two measures ma- match up pretty well. I, I looked at some graphs this morning and things and, and saw that a lot of times what you'll see is, is that those two things tend to go together. It's just that the MBER looks at more than just the GDP growth figures during that time frame. And so, so let's say just run of the mill investors in the Wall Street, uh, you know, community. Do they dig deeper and look at MBER or do they rely on the second definition that you shared with me, two uh, quarters of negative GDP growth? Well, I can't really speak for them. <laughs> so, um, I have a feeling that so because they're usually trying to move things quickly, right? But yeah, they, yeah. That's why I asked that question. In real time as much yeah. as they can. So I think that they look at a whole series of things. I mean, they may look at unemployment. There's an interesting, uh, the, the New York Federal Reserve Bank actually has been, their, their research group has been putting out kind of almost a real-time measure of GDP growth. Um, so if you go there, like usually about once a week or whatever, you can wow. get on, on an email list when they've got a whole bunch of series and they tried to look at how those series tracked what was going on in the past. And then they're trying to give you a much faster answer about what's going on. Because usually the biggest problem you face with with these things is is that the government statistics, you know, they have to have to have time to measure thing, and so yeah. you know you don't know what the what inflation was for the previous month until three or four or five days after the previous month ended, right? Yeah, yeah. Same thing with unemployment because you have to have the whole month to be able to tell what's going on, and so that by itself uh, leads to problems and so you know sometimes people are trying to come up with with ways that they can measure what's going on much more quickly um and so they look at at series that are reported daily say or things along those lines so going back to the different definitions we talked about two one was mber the other one was the straightforward two quarters of uh, negative gdp growth are there any others that are relevant or prominent um you might yeah, maybe looking at unemployment rates and we to see if they're going up, but those are those are the two most common ones I hear about. Is um, I, have, I haven't seen a lot of other ones. Uh, it, it's you know, but the economy is a very complex place, so people could have a more complex definition. It's just these are the two that seem to be the ones that people talk about the most. Does our government? rely on any specific definitions of NBER? Because NBER is not, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not a government institution, right? No, no, it's a it's a collection of actually almost, well, not just entirely academics, but mostly academic research. Yeah, such as yourself. So 
is the, let's say Secretary Yellen, the Treasury Department or the Fed, is do they rely on something different? different uh, well, it's hard to say. I mean, so certainly uh, Joe Biden or whatever has come out with statements about recessions that don't seem to rely on either of these two things. <laughs> uh, you know, but that's that's natural, right? You're a politician, so yeah. you, know, you want to say things are typically better than what they are and things along those lines. So. Um, I think Yellen and and also in the Federal Reserve Bank and things like that, they're using it a whole bunch of different types of things to try to think. I'm th I think they're less worried about call, whether calling whether it's a recession or not than they are as just looking at series and trying to see if they can offset drops in the series and sometimes slow down rapid increases in the series. But I think they're most worried about when things are, are getting worse and then are there uh, tools that they can use to make things better? I see. Has there ever been a time where that has been uh, for, I don't know, for two, three weeks or a month, ongoing conflict between different definitions of recession? One definition says, yes, there's a recession. Another one says, no, we're fine and dandy. Well, if we, if we go to the two we're talking about, um, there may be some conflict in the sense that there wasn't two two straight quarters where GDP dropped. Okay. And so in that case, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the NBER could still call a recession because they say, well, GDP didn't drop, but we saw a spike in unemployment or we saw a decline in investment or you know, a specific component of GDP that we're worried about was moving in certain directions. So they, they can be contradictory. Um, but remember, the MBER is kind of doing things a little bit later than reporting about recessions later than just using the statistics directly. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, I find really interesting is this. At what point does a recession become a depression? And let me share my sort of personal experience and yours as well here. The Great Recession of 2008, 2009, you know, I, I, I wasn't alive in the 1930s. So that Great Recession sure as heck felt like a depression, but yet we called it a recession, right? Right. So is that just semantics, politics? What is that? No, I think I think what's going on there is, is that um, I think the key to, to a depression is length. Length. Okay. Length. Yeah. And so now there's supposed to be a story that they used to call depressions real short term periods. So you just have oh, a slight depression. Right. And that recession is oh. really serious thing. Now, I almost have, the reverse of what we have now. Right. Yeah, exactly. This, this supposedly changed with the Great Depression. Um, <laughs> I have never seen this written down anywhere. So I've just been told this you know, by two or three or four different people. So I can't say this for sure. Oh, that's it, interesting. It makes some sense. You know, you just think about, yeah, depression, you just press down on something, you know. And, you know, so I think it, sometimes the words change. You, you just know, don't know for sure. Okay. But so, one thing is that the, uh, the Great Recession, you know, the GDP didn't drop off for all that, that long a time period. And unemployment was high for, you know, a few months. But it wasn't. It wasn't anything like the Great Depression. <laughs> yeah, 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 not yeah. even remotely. We had probably about a two percent drop off or something like that. Maybe three percent drop off in one month relative to the previous year in GDP. Um, in GDP during mm -hmm. the during the Great Recession, 
Uh, we had unemployment rates that were, you know, right around 10% at the, in, in, during that time frame, but it didn't stay at 10 for very long. Um, and then they dropped back down, you know, they were at seven. Oh, that, that, that certainly doesn't compare with the great depression of the 1930s. I mean, that no, was like, so it just didn't last long enough. Yeah. And actually a lot of people forget about how bad the late seventies, early eighties were when we had, when we had, um, you know, we had both high unemployment and high inflation at the same time. And so I, I don't know if you remember this. I remember it vividly because I was in graduate school at the time. And the unemployment rate was up around 10%. The inflation rate was up around 10 or 11%, 12%. Interest rates on mortgages were like 18% for- Oh, you and I talked about this in our last uh, podcast conversation. Yeah. So this well, is uh, like at the end of- Carter era? Yeah, it's the end of the Carter era, beginning of Reagan. And so it lasts mm. into 82. And this is when Paul Volcker, who yeah. was the reserve chair at the time, you know, he kind of put the brakes on the money supply and brought things down, but at the cost of a pretty hefty recession. And so but you still don't call that a depression. That one not because it's just not quite long enough. I mean, so <laughs> the Great Depression just was so big, it's kind of made it hard to become a depression otherwise, you know? So, because yeah. think about this, Great Depression, uh, 1930 was about 9% unemployment for the year. The next year was like 15. Wow. And then 1932, 33, 34, and 35, they were all above 20. Uh, and wow. then we never got back below 10 again until like 19. 41. So, so World War II. Yeah, until World War II. And actually, we, we were actually pretty much out of the Depression just before we entered World War II. I see. I so see. the long run, we actually were back right around the long run growth rate and real GDP per person just as we entered World War II. So in 1941, we actually kind of caught back up to where the trend, trend line was. That's That's more than a full decade. Oh, yeah. So it was, it was a nightmare. And so, you know, real GDP in 1933 was 30% below what it had been in 1929. Interesting. So I understand. Uh, I appreciate what you mean by length and the uh, depth. And depth in this case, too. Exactly, depth. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the history of our many recessions. We'll be back. Last year, as the rise in home prices slowed and then teetered, and in some markets began to decline, I spoke with Dr. Fishback about the history of housing booms and busts. It's also a fascinating episode about the history of home mortgages. How's this for a shock? Try paying off your home mortgage in just five years with one big balloon payment. Of course, this is before large banks got into the home mortgage business. The link to my prior conversation with Dr. Fishback about the history of housing bubbles in Season 2, Episode 32 is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Fishback about recessions. Dr. Fishback, how many recessions has our country had? Is that even possible to measure that? Quantify. Well, let me let me give you more of a sense. I mean, so actually, we in the last since that the the recession we were talking about in the early '80s, late '70s, mm -hmm. we have gone very long periods of time without a recession. Oh, 
And so I'd say that I think it's the five out of the seven longest expansions in American history. Uh, when you know we actually had the longest expansion during during the period that ran from Obama until the problems we had with COVID um, was the longest expansion in American history. And so most times up until that time, the typical pattern was to have a recession about once every three to seven years. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And so a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting because in the 19th century, you know, between 1800 and 1900, the, the, the recessions tended to be situations where the price level dropped at the same time as output dropped as well. So we had deflation during these recessions. And so you hear a lot of economists these days worrying about having deflations because they're worried that, that, that deflation is gonna be more likely to generate a recession and things. Now, I'm not sure that that's exactly true because we had like long-term deflation where the price level was falling from the, from the end of the Civil War till the early 1890s. And that was a period where we had very rapid economic growth overall. Yeah. We did bounce up and down quite a bit. Now, one of the reasons is because there, there are multiple reasons. One is we were much more dependent upon agriculture. And so you brad crops and things like that could leave back you. then, back then we back were then. dependent. Yeah, yeah. back okay. in the in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Um, another thing is is that the stock market was very thin in a sense. It was almost all railroad stocks and things like this. And so uh, you can have railroad stocks fall apart, and then the banking system was a little bit more susceptible to fluctuations as well. And, and so that, that kind of period where we're every three to seven years pretty much ends uh, around, around the, around the end of the Carter administration, beginning of the Reagan administration. Did they call, did they call it recession back then as well? Are we, we're in a recession. Is that something that they called we're in a recession or it was just. Or they just said it was a downturn or something. It was like a downturn. That. I'm not yeah. sure. Well, this, remember we had this conversation about depression versus recession. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I asked it. I would <laughs> wonder so, what. You know, you kind of go back and forth or whatever. So. Um, after you explained this, I'm wondering this, Dr. Fishback, is there a cyclicality to recessions? Well, that's what they, they spend a lot of time. Matter of fact, there's a, that basically people spend a lot of time thinking about business cycle theory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and matter of fact, the, the MBER actually formed uh, in, the, in the early 1900s in part because they were very interested in trying to develop models and develop under, deeper understanding of what caused the business cycle to occur. And so, and you know, and so actually, you know, Marx and all sorts of people from time immemorial have been talking about business cycles and trying to worry about the ups and downs in the economy. And yeah, you know, there, there are long cycles and short cycles, and they have Kondratiev cycles that, that are like six every 30 or 60 years, you know, things like this. And so the people have worried about the fluctuations quite a bit. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter, for example, was yeah uh, from Austria. Yeah, from Austria was was famous for his work on this, where he suggested that what what typically happened was is that you develop new innovations, and then you had the followers of the innovations, and then eventually you kind of overshot what 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 you could do because you just had too many firms, and and they they were imitating what was happening, and then you have a shakeout, and then you go back and 
you know, then you continue the innovation process. And so it's just, it's just a natural part of, a, of, a, of an economy that has technological change that you would have these things. So, and there've been a lot of theories about why you have this, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the discussion was always talked, they talked about the Phillips curve where you had, well, if you had high inflation, you had low unemployment. And if you had low inflation, you had high unemployment, you know, and so, and that was just based on uh, Phillips, who was a statistician, just plotting a bunch of points between unemployment and inflation and just saying, oh, look, there's this positive relationship between these two. Um, and uh, or negative, there's sorry, there's this negative relationship between these two. And okay. so we should be paying attention to that when we're making policy. So high, inf- high inflation would cause low well, employment. It's, it's not clear whether it was causal or not. I mean, people yeah. tried to develop models that made it causal. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, the economists are where we, we always, we've always tried to explain this. And so then we thought, well, you know, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz wrote a whole book about the relationship of the business cycle with the money supply. So they had a monetary history of the United States back in 1963. And they noted that when you see fluctuations in the money supply, what you tend to see is, is that the you know, prices and quantity, when the money supply rises, price and quantity goes up. When money supply falls, price and quantity falls. And so they they were kind of wrote the, the history of American economy or whatever based on what was going on in the banking sector and the money mm-hmm. supply. And then you had the Keynesian analyses where Keynes was saying, well, we have these kind of blockages in the economy. And so you can actually re- reach an equilibrium where you're at, at high unemployment rates. And so that's why you need some kind of government stimulus or whatever to get you to move to back to a, an unemployment rate and, and, and growth rate that's more normal where you'd like it to be. And so they did a lot of theorizing about this. And so in the eight, in the 70s, 60s, I think people thought we had it kind of licked. <laughs> <laughs> that economists kind of knew what they were doing. You know, there's a famous Kennedy tax cut that was said to stimulate the economy. He had a lot of uh, Keynesians. That's yeah. the first time really where Keynesians were kind of in charge of policy, Walter Heller and some of these other guys. And boy, did we get it wrong that we had it licked because yeah. in the 70s, suddenly we had stagflation. We had high inflation and high unemployment at the same time. Um, and part of that was being driven by oil prices because the oil kept, you know, OPEC started doubling oil prices in the early 70s. They doubled it then, then they doubled it again in the late 70s. And so that just raised the cost of everything. Not, It's not really inflation per se. It's actually the, the real cost of producing things. And so... Um, and so, you know, most, most, most people still agree, not, not everybody, that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. If you have too much money, then that's going to create inflation because you have too much money chasing too few goods. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these, these kind of real cost shifts or whatever can be really nasty. And then we had, you know, the, the recession that was associated with COVID. And, and that was amazingly short. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was maybe partly due to quantitative easing or the money that was pumped in. Who knows? Well, it was partly partly quantitative easing. I think that uh, actually, I thought at that point that the the ideas of having the PPP loans, where you yeah. maintain employment for people, because uh, you, know, you want to keep that employment relationship. Because if it breaks, then you got to restart it again, and that's not good. So I thought that was good. I thought the the payments for unemployment insurance were a good idea. 
they may have paid too much and they may have done it for too long, but at least as a starting point, I thought that was a good idea. You know, as you and I talk about cyclicality uh, to recessions, whether or not there is one in business cycle and economists uh, always are interested in this trying to figure out. In fact, the MBER may have started as an attempt to try to put some rhyme and reason uh, to, to, to business cycles and recessions. Uh, <laughs> I'm wondering this, is there a sense of inevitability to recessions that we, is there an economist somewhere out there say, nope, we, we may have a time that we won't have any recessions at all? Well, there, I think that there, there are people out there who hope that we can reach that point. Yeah. Um, but, and that's actually, that's actually been the good news of the last 40 years, actually, is because we've had so many fewer recessions than we've had in the past. Um, and so, so, the monetarists, and I tend to be somewhat of a monetarist, kind of an old style monetarist. Um, you got you. What happened is, is that the, the whole nature of the focus of business cycles kind of shifted. It used to be that you had Keynesians versus monetarists, and the Keynesians thought that fiscal policy would be the key, and the monetarists thought monetary policy was the key. Mm -hmm. So then, when we had stagflation, people started worrying about the issue of expectations, and so this is where. Um, Lucas becomes becomes very important uh, because what, what you're doing is, is that if people can anticipate what's happening with, monet, with monetary and fiscal policy, then what they're going to do is they're just going to just going to say, well, the, we're just going to we're not going to necessarily buy more. The prices are just going to go up. Yeah. You have more inflation. And so then Friedman and some other people came up with adaptive expectations where well, you can have effects on you can you can increase federal spending, and you can have effects on the economy for a period of time before people figure out that it's just a federal stimulus. Yeah, yeah, like we had, yeah, yeah, and that that's the model that I think best fits what I think is going on. Um, but the the modeling has gotten much more complex than it used to be, and it used to be kind of macroeconomics was entirely separate from microeconomics. But now almost all the macro models start with a with a group of with microeconomic microeconomics where you're looking at individual decision makers. Yeah. And then you aggregate them up under certain conditions. But the the discussions still are, well, how, how much um, how sticky is the economy? How sticky are wages and how sticky are prices? Because the stickier they are, the more likely it is that output's going to fluctuate instead. And if the prices can fluctuate, then easily, then you then output doesn't need to fluctuate as much. You can fluctuate more in prices. We are sort of talking about what I'm about to ask you, which is, but but I want to ask this question to just become more succinctly speak about it. Um, are there factors that repeat in history over and over that cause recessions? Or each recession, it's like, wow, this is new. <laughs> no, I think that I think that that's what they were looking for, and that's what we've always been looking for: is factors yeah. that that lead to these types of things. Uh, you know, so Schumpeter really emphasized the new technologies and new innovations, and and then these expansions and things along those lines. Um, you know, one of the issues is is whether or not uh, what's going on with the banking sector or with investments. Um, like, do you look at uh, lending when it comes to that? Well, it could be lending. And so, you know, so what happens is a, a lot of times a recession might get kicked off when uh, banks have been lending a lot and then firms start to fail. 
you know, think about the Great Recession. Actually, it was kicked off by a situation where you had really a, a, a very hot housing market mm-hmm. that then started to fall apart. And then and then, you know, all these all these investments were kind of were kind of relying upon this idea of a hot housing market going on. And then suddenly that, you know, you start having foreclosures and things like this. And so that started to, to lead towards, well, first you have to foreclosures and the foreclosures start to create problems for the mortgage-backed securities, which had been used. Mm-hmm. You know, and they built up mortgage-backed securities as a way to spread risk, right? Because yeah. you didn't want to own just one mortgage. You wanted to own 10,000 mortgages. So you've got a portfolio. And you, if one goes down, you know the rest of them are still going, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, when the mortgage-backed securities fall apart, well, the, these are things that are underlying what what are known as collateralized debt obligations, where they just accumulated a whole bunch of mortgage-backed <laughs> securities, kind of like this tower, yeah, building. And what was that? Well, that was an attempt also to spread risk, yeah, because you're owning more and more of these types, different types. And then they had credit default swaps which were on these, these collateralized debt obligations and the, and the CDOs, those were insurance. They actually were literally buying insurance. It was an insurance contract. Yeah. And uh, when these things started to fall apart and when companies like AIG failed or were failing and, pe- and other people who were holding credit default swaps, then no one actually believed that it would ever happen. It's the world's largest insurance company. Right? Yeah, AIG, yeah. And so, and everything's all correlated. And so that's when things go down. Um, in the you know, 19th century, a lot of times what would happen is, is people would make mistakes in investing and then you'd have a group of bank failures. And one of the interesting things about the 19th century is everybody thinks about bank runs, right? Yeah. Okay. So the, the classic story of a bank run is... Uh, people are worried that a bank is, has issued too much currency, issued too much loans. And so now what happens is they're worried that they can't get their money out of the bank. So they run to the bank to collect their deposits. Kind of and, like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Exactly. Back to that yeah. perfect example. So everybody's yeah. running to the bank to try to get their money out. Okay. And as long as Silicon Valley Bank can leave this as a liquidity problem, where all they all they need to do is borrow some money pay off their depositors, the depositors bring the money back, put it back in the bank, everything's good. But if like, if what actually happened with Silicon Valley Bank happened, happened to banks, Silicon Valley Bank has these assets that they realize, okay, we don't have enough money, we can't borrow enough money, we have to sell these assets. And the assets they had held were treasury bills, which were like, had an interest rate of 1%, when that, you know, when the inflation rates like 5% and 6%, suddenly these things are not worth nearly as much as they were originally. So what you're saying, Dr. Fishback, is that they didn't have a liquidity problem. They had a solvency problem, actually. An asset problem, exactly. An asset, okay. And so, and so that's when, and so the biggest problem is always if you have to have a fire sale of your assets, then you're going down. And if that's, if, if that's widespread enough, if that's systemic and that becomes a recession. That's right. And so and so that and that can kick off a recession. Right? Yeah. And um, so that's and so a lot of times things in the banking sector or things in the stock markets kicked off recessions in the during the 19 during the 1800s. 
But what's really interesting, but a lot of times when you think about these bank runs, everybody has in their mind that everybody's running on banks, right? That it's it's widespread. Yeah, yeah. But it turns out that in the yeah, there's um, I've read a number of different pa- things where they were looking at newspapers and things like that during this time frame, and they would study it. So there, like 1873 was a particularly bad year. Yeah. 1883 was a bad year. 1893. So end in three seems bad. <laughs> so, but in, in most of these cases, what would happen is, is that there'd be some problems with a specific bank. The newspapers were pretty good about reporting information about banks in, say, the 1870s. Okay. And so if they knew that there was a problem, one, one group tried to corner the copper market. <laughs> and so they try to corner the copper market. They don't succeed. And so suddenly the banks that are associated with the guy who was trying to corner the copper market, everybody runs on that bank because they're con- convinced this is going bad. And then and then they run on banks that are that are correspondents that are yeah. related to the bank that loan back and forth between the two banks and stuff. But most of the bank run actually ended. It only focused on like six or seven banks. If people knew which banks to focus on and not every other bank. And so the big worry is always, well, how do you stop it from becoming to spread everywhere, everywhere else? And so the times when it did spread much more broadly, there was a period in the in 1890s, early 1890s, where we had a pretty severe, severe some people call that a depression. Um, we had pretty high unemployment during that period. And then the 30s was one where you had a lot more runs on banks that were more widespread. It was kind of not just focused on specific banks all the time, but actually seemed to spread out to a bunch of other banks. But that's pretty rare, actually, to have Thank it God. spread out to everybody. Um, so what you're saying is that some key banks, maybe even in one specific sector, are the problem banks. That can create panic and p- people sort of preemptively run in um you know want to take their money out but right. that hasn't that happened in a lot rarely. but that yeah. happens rarely that that and so most of the times that was what i was surprised about because i'd always had this thought that everything was general but then i was reading these things reading these stories based on the newspaper accounts and stuff and it turned out to be it was confined to just a few banks in in, in most of these kind of bank run type situations that, that's good because that's containable hopefully what we have now is, is containable. that's right and so is- hopefully we've done a good enough job that SVB and Republic Bank aren't going to repeat all over the country. Now, Although there are no worries about a lot of these smaller banks facing these kind of problems. Um, two follow-up questions regarding repeat factors that may cause recessions. Um, we talked about banking. What I'm curious about is this. Have money policies, money supply policies by the U.S. government, have they ever led to recessions? Well, certainly that was Friedman and Schwartz's story for the Great yeah. Depression, actually. And, and oh. they suggested that a lot of times what would happen is, is if the money supply was shrinking, that would put pressure on income. And, and so that would actually cause situations where you'd actually have a, dep- have a recession as a result. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the, the big thing that Friedman and Schwartz talk about, about the, the Great Depression is the following. So we really didn't have a central bank. We had kind of semi-central banks in the early 1800s. Yeah. But not full scale. Yeah. So we really don't get a central bank until the 19 until after the 1907-1908 problem recession. 
Yeah. So it comes in 1913. Right. Comes in 1913. And so they're still trying to figure out what's going on. Okay. They're not a huge number of central banks around the world. And so they come into the 1920s and they're worried about the stock market overheating because, you know, stock market's taken off like crazy yeah. in the latter part of the decade. And so they tend to try to slow it down by slowing down the money supply to some extent. Okay. And then when things start to fall apart, um, Friedman and Schwartz say they act too little too late. And so the key thing with that, that the Fed was designed to do was they call it, well, the, the, the terminology was provide an elastic currency, whatever the hell that means. I see. I see. But maybe <laughs> okay. that means pump more money, right? Right. Well, so the basic idea was yeah. is that what you want to do <clears throat> is you want to be a lender of last resort. Okay, but there were differences of opinion of what that meant. Okay, and so uh, there was what was known as the real bills doctrine. And so the idea there was that you wanted to provide enough money to let successful banks continue and do very well. Okay, and then there was kind of the, the alternative side, which was uh, kind of following kind of Badgett's rule, where the idea was is that what you do is that the, the bank is in trouble, Okay, you want to you want to get rid of the liquidity. So what you do is you lend to them, and you lend to them at a, at a slightly higher than normal rate, at a penalty rate was the story. Yeah. Okay, and so we get into the great great. We get you know things start to fall apart, and banks are failing, and Freeman Schwartz say they just didn't act as a lender of last resort enough, and so and matter of fact, it's kind of interesting because Gary Richardson. Um, and one of his co-authors wrote this paper about the differences between how the Atlanta Federal Reserve dealt with problems and the St. Louis Fed. Okay, because that you know we have twelve set we have twelve Federal Reserve banks yeah. in the country, and at that time, wherever there were there was more differentiation between the policies. Okay, so they're comparing Atlanta, Atlanta Fed Reserve versus which one? St. Louis. Okay, St. Louis. Okay. Okay, and so the state of Mississippi was split between the two districts. And so what Gary did was he collected information on the southern part of Mississippi was in the Atlanta district and the northern part of Mississippi was in the St. Louis Fed district. And the Atlanta Fed was much more Badgett's rule, lend freely, you know, make sure that the bank survives. Okay. And the St. Louis Fed was much more of this real bills doctrine. Uh, you're supposed to be responding to what the economy is doing. And so it turns out that the number of bank failures in Mississippi was much smaller than the number of bank failures in St. Louis. Oh, that's so, fascinating. Oh, oh wow. yeah, it's a very, very nice study. It came out. Um, but yeah, so you could kind of see. So this was kind of similar to what Freeman was saying. Now, Freeman didn't know about this study at the time. Because yeah. It was written 50 years later. But, but basically, his idea was is that the Fed was seeing all these bank failures They'd seen a lot of bank failures in the 19 in the 1920s as well, because you know, small banks heavily focused on you know local things could fall apart. Yeah. But the the scope just went up. And waited, and then they were worried about the fact that the that uh United Kingdom went off of money and went off of gold. Yeah. Went off the gold standard, and so they were trying to fight fight that for losing gold to the United Kingdom after the United Kingdom went off the gold standard. And so, what they they kind of raised rates at a time when it would have helped to lower rates, 
And it wasn't until like 1932 that they really came out and bought a huge amount of bonds and open market operations to try to offset the problems. And so as a result, we had both deflation and we had a big drop in, 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 in output and, and employment that they blame, they say that the money supply change kind of caused this. Now there are disputes among economists over this. Which is really fascinating. To this day, we're in 2023. There's still the story on the Great Depression keeps on being rewritten in some small ways and detailed ways. But um, well, we keep learning things. We keep finding new data and keep finding new information. But I think almost everybody agrees. If you're to if you're to assign blame, I think the smallest amount that that people would say would assign the blame to the Fed is about that count for about 30 percent of the depression. Okay. Which is still significant, yeah. That's still significant, and so yeah. and so then there's all sorts of other things going on, um, you know, all sorts of problems with expectations and consumption and stock market falling apart, and therefore people not having much in the way of things to invest or and things like that. So, I mean, the Great Depression is so big, it's hard to believe that just one thing caused it. So exactly, the but the worst well, thing possible. But going back to my question about uh, money supply, whether or not government money supply can actually cause money supply policies, that's what I mean to say, can cause uh, a recession. I think all feds and economists probably always operate with the money supply challenges or the story of the Fed back in the late 1920s and early 30s as a backdrop for our current actions, probably. Right. As a matter of fact, the Benjamin Bernanke, when he became the head of the Fed, where we actually, they were celebrating Milton Friedman's late, his 100th birthday, and he gave a speech where he said, we agree with you, Fed played a bigger role, we will never let that happen again. And, you know, so we had quantitative easing one and quantitative easing two, Yeah, continued on from there. I, I don't think two, three, and later were actually really kind of responses to, to the Great Recession anymore. Yeah. They were just trying to stimulate things. Now, another classic example, too, where um, it was Volcker's restrictions on the money supply that we had a pretty severe recession in, in, in the early 80s because Volcker slammed the brakes on the money supply. So that's another example. So at that time, whatever, I think most people believe that uh, the, the way to deal with inflation was to pretty much just kind of let don't it let ride like grow too fast don't let it drop uh-huh. and just kind of try to keep inflation around two percent we've done that pretty successfully until the last few months so yeah and janet yellen is is very worried about that um yeah, well a lot of people are worried about it because yeah because you know the combination of the big increase in government spending and the combination of the fed accommodating a lot of these things for a very extended period of time we were running kind of an experiment for the last 15 years because we kept QE2, QE3, kept interest rates so low that, and the big surprise was, why weren't we having more inflation? Because it seemed like that we did this, but they were, I think they were paying interest on, on, on reserves, which actually kept banks from lending a lot of those reserves. And I think they were kind of restricting banks lending to some extent to make sure that they had a good base for the lending before they let them lend on it again. Yeah. We'll be back after a short break to talk about predicting and preventing recessions. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features. 
including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series, with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries, like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests, like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Fishback, I have two questions queued up for you in this segment, but after everything you talked about, I kind of feel silly even asking that. Um, I want to talk about predicting and preventing recessions. Um, have we become better at predicting recessions? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, I, we maybe, we, I don't know if we've become better at predicting them because a lot of times what happens is, is unusual stuff happens like COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also the, it's kind of like, I wanted to do this thing when I was, when I first started as a assistant professor at the University of Georgia. And, and I wanted to, get, to have this thing where it seems like that, that bad news about the economy sells really well in books, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, the Great Depression of 1990, that's yeah, yeah. a bestseller and stuff. And, and, and so what I wanted to do is I wanted to have, go to each of my colleagues and make a deal where we would each pick a different year where we, we would predict a recession for some other reason or not or whatever, and each publish a book that would say, oh, 1991, 92, 93, 94, and whoever hit the recession had to share the money. Oh, I love it. <laughs> what happened to the project? Well, no, we didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. So, um, but anyway, so you, know, you kind of hit the slight guys, but the I think we've become better at preventing them. I'm not sure exactly why. Um, at, for the longest time, I thought it was because we were doing a good job of keeping control of the money supply uh -huh. and not letting it grow too much. Um, and that was keeping inflation relatively flat. But the, the, but you just get these surprises. Like, I don't think anybody was expecting, like you talked to people in 2005, I don't think that they were expecting the housing crisis that we just, that we saw three years later. Oh, in fact, yeah. some people went back and, and they actually read what everybody was saying at the time. And there might be two people. Yeah. That, that said, yeah. This, you know, and, and, and then you think about the big short, right? The movie, the big short. And the, I love that movie. Yeah. 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 And so you think about this, whatever, for the longest time, his, his bet looks awful. I mean, he's about to close everything down. And then finally, finally, the, everything hits the fan the way he thought it was going to hit. Yeah. But he was very unusual. That's why he made so much money in this, in this context, you know? And so, and expecting COVID to occur. I mean, you know, there's, there's bound to be these things that happen. Well, and let's so, put uh, let's put unusual stuff aside, if if we if if we may for a moment, please. I, I want to go back to the first segment of our conversation when okay. we were talking about NBER data, yes. and also um, the other definition was two straight quarters of negative GDP growth. Right. Economy is essentially decelerating, more or less, right. for two quarters. And then there may be other definitions or other tools that, let's say, our government, let's say, Secretary Yellen or Chairman Paul use. Right. All of these seem to be after the fact. None of them are predictive. It's like we are now in a recession versus we'll be in a recession. You're looking at things that have 
happened. Yep. Yeah, so this is exactly. not really we're, predicting. We're they're happening now, but that's where the problem of the collection of data become, becomes an issue. Yeah. Is that if you think about this, everything's always a month late or a quarter late with respect to GDP, right? Because you have to complete yeah. the quarter before you can announce things. And so I think most of the people who are on Wall Street and most people who are trying to do day-to-day -day investing, and like I said, the New York Fed actually has this new thing where they have these weekly estimates. Yeah, yeah. Um, what they're trying to do is use whatever series that they that they see to try to, to tease out what they think is going to happen in the market. Now, a lot of times what they're focusing on is individual stocks, right? But, you know, there are enough of these, you know, broad-based investments like in, you know, the whether or not you should buy the S&P 500, you know, uh, mutual fund and things like mm -hmm. that. You want to you estimate what's going on in the economy. And so a variety of different people have different ways of doing it. You, you know, you have some people have these mechanical models where they have these algorithms where they say, okay, mo most of the time when this, when this series does this, uh, we're going to have a problem. You know, sometimes people said you're, you don't really want to make, you don't want to really make a big investment at the end of the year because there's going to be some kind of end of the year problem that's going to come up. And so I had a friend actually who uh, was the Wall Street astrologer who worked on Wall Street. There's for, such a thing? Well, he was. I mean, uh, he worked on Wall Street for 20 years and then he got into astrology and he was charting things and he had, he had a newsletter and people were buying his stuff and things like that. Um, now, that may not be entirely insane, uh, but... You know, you used to have sunspot stories, right? They say, oh, the economy's responding to sunspots. And it sounds really stupid until you realize that sunspots might influence agricultural cycles. And then the agricultural cycles influence things. And so I think a lot of people are just trying to look at a lot of different kinds of data and try to see what happens in these various things. And so there are some patterns that tend to, you know, there are some like how the housing industry tends to be more cyclical than other industries. And so if you can predict what's going on in the housing industry, then you can probably do a pretty good job of predicting what's going on in terms of recessions. Predicting a stock market doesn't really tell you whether you're going to have a recession very easily or not, because I think most people have found that stock market, stock market downturns uh, predict like 14 out of the last three recessions. So <laughs> they predict 14 recessions, but only three occur. Um, oh, that's interesting. So they overshot with respect to predicting recessions. Only three occurred. Right. Really and so, and so, you know, so it's just, a, you know, problems in the monetary sector. I mean, a lot of people were really worried about SVB going down and Republic Bank going down in these cases, but they, and that's why they responded so, so strongly uh, in, in that context um, to try to make sure that it didn't spread to other areas. Um if, if like well, I told you during the break, if, if I could predict this, I'd be living on an island. <laughs> I'd be flying back and forth to wherever I wanted to go. Uh, we'll still reach you there and we'll do a podcast from exactly, your island. Exactly. Um, the, um, the, one of the things that I comment that I wanted to make about Wall Street, by that I mean like JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and a host of different investment uh, institutions, when they predict uh, recession, they do a combination of in-house economists and data along with other data that they compile like from MBER or from the government. Um, but many a times I've noticed just from my personal life, their predictions could be actually very conservative 
because they don't want their clients to lose money. And then as a result, they lose money. Right. So is, is it, I don't want to say it's tainted, but is it, it sometimes it feels like it's not the best metric for predicting recession when it comes to private Wall Street analysis. Well, that's why think- I think you want to look at a variety of different, yeah. different predictors. I mean, so, you know, when you look at any one time and you're going to see like a distribution of, of predictions. Um, and, and so usually they report to you the mean or the median of the predictions, but they don't show you the entire distribution. I had my boss, when I worked at Weyerhaeuser as, a, 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 as an intern, when I was a, a graduate student at the University of Washington, and my boss at the time, he was, he was predicting a lot. And he eventually went to Merrill Lynch, actually, and was predicting for them. But I still remember, like, 20 years later, reading about him in a situation where the Wall Street Journal was reporting about the tour he was making where he had predicted a recession and it didn't occur. And so he was going around and, and visiting all sorts of various people to talk about why this didn't happen and things along those lines to, to maintain his reputation in a sense. I love it. You can be wrong and still go on a tour and get paid for it. Uh, well, stay- well, yeah, he was getting paid, but not by those people. But not by those people. Uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Fishback as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Fishback, why was there so much talk and speculation about a looming recession just up to a couple of months ago or maybe three months ago? And all of a sudden it sort of died down. You don't, you know, it's not, it's not all over the news like it used to be. You know, you would just click on the Wall Street Journal and be right there on the like, you know, front page. Right. What happened? Well, I think what happened was is employment stayed up. I mean, the, the unemployment rate stayed low and, and we, we've continued to increase employment and no one was really sure because everybody was kind of thinking that, you know, China's having problems. They have 20% youth unemployment. Uh, the, Europe's having some issues as well. And they were thinking, well, we're, we, we've just done this blowout, right? Where we spent huge, huge amounts of money um, and ran a very large deficit. And so now we're cutting back. And so it just seems like that with the rest of the world starting to fall apart, we're still having supply chain issues. And so we would expect unemployment rates to start to rise back up. But but so far that hasn't happened. And so they're also worried about the inflation causing issues as well. And so they thought, well, that's gonna cut back on people's consumption. I think that was what they were mostly worried about was that the high prices were gonna cut back on people's consumption and that would lead to a recession. So, so far it hasn't happened. I think people <laughs> are still, still yeah. kind of flummoxed. The prices are still there. There's still worries about inflation uh, and people are, you know, people are complaining about it. I mean, I've seen, I've seen big jumps when I go to the grocery store and stuff. And I'm kind of going, oh no, not again. There goes a hundred dollars. Let me read an excerpt from um, uh, June 4th, very recent Wall Street Journal article. Um, I think I shared this with you prior to our podcast. Quote, economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal in April put the probability of a recession at some point in the next 12 months above 
50%. But they have said that since October, and the recession appears no closer, unquote. So um, this kind of goes into what we were talking about. Everyone's worried about the recession, but it's not happening. What are your thoughts? Do you think we'll have a recession soon in the next 12 months? Um. You know, actually, <laughs> I am, it goes it goes back to are, it goes back to that island thing that you were saying. If you could exactly, predict. if I could pick that, I'd be great. Um, yeah, I just don't know. I mean, the 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 most amazing thing to me was the fact that we were able to stop the the problems, even though we closed down the economy and all sorts of things like that. We were able to to get out of the problems with with COVID so quickly relative to what we expected. And I think part of what people are expecting is, is that there's going to be some kind of backlash or whatever that's going to continue. I mean, but we're still running into problems where, you know, everybody's still trying to hire and they can't hire enough people and and people are sitting out. And so, I, yeah, I, I, I wish I could tell you because <laughs> I'm just as surprised it, as they are. Is the uh, is the MBER predicting a recession? Do they have some sort they of don't metric get in the for business of predicting recessions? I mean, they're they're in the business of describing what's going on. I mean, now the individual members will predict recessions and things, but the the recession committee will not will not go to the point of predicting recessions. So they analyze what's happening or what they has want to happened. analyze what's happening. They want to tell you what, what whether we're in a recession or not, but. Uh, the NBR tries to be apolitical as much as possible. And so they, they don't want to be in the business of kind of predicting things along those lines. That's that's really interesting. We're talking about recession and economy. And you said NBER doesn't want to be political at all, which makes sense because economy has so much to do with politics. Uh, Dr. Fishback, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about recession, what would it be? Um, actually, that... The, the, I think the most important thing we really haven't talked about it is, is oh that boy. we we have we we've had a very long period where we have mostly boom, okay, and then we have recessions. And if you, I have a good friend John Wallace and then Steve Broadberry who have been working on these things where they talk about shrink theory. Shrink theory, shrink okay. Theory. And so the basic idea in this is the following: is is if you look at the long-term growth of most of the countries around the world, most of the countries who have been successful and are rich are ones where they've they've grown much more than they've fallen off during recessions or fallen off due to warfare or due to civil war or all sorts of different goofy things that can happen. Terrible things can happen. But if And so if you look at the countries where they are not very rich, a lot of times what happens is, is they'll grow for a while then they'll have a depression or a recession or a war or something, that, and they'll give it all back. It'll wipe all of that off. It'll wipe it all out, and then they start from the same from where they were before. And so, uh, having a having a, a set of you know good institutions, rule of law, uh, you know, property rights protected, and and all kind of the standard things that you'd like to see for an economy is good because it tends to keep you from having these periods where you give it all back. Well, interesting. So you may still have recessions, but in uh, in countries and regions in which strong uh, institutions and strong systems are in place, that recession may not be as deep and may not be as catastrophic and let's say in, in, in developing countries. Right. Where right. these hiccups just wipe away everything that has been made. 
Right. And so, and so, because for the longest time, I mean, and so what's really good about a lot of the, you know, a lot of the advanced economies or whatever is that they have a lot of opportunity for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that that's really important. And so the government is open in such a way. So there's a lot of opportunity and, and you can do it different ways. Like I was just in Finland, right. And in the Nordic countries, yeah, they have much more government activity, but they're still pretty heavily market economies or whatever. And they have a lot of opportunity for people to, to do better. Same thing in the United States. We have people who are not doing so well, but we also have opportunity for them to move up. Yeah. And we just need to keep increasing it. And so the recessions are worrisome. Where if we had another Great Depression, where that would be a nightmare. Uh, but we don't seem to be on the cusp of anything like that. We seem to be doing okay. And actually, the worst thing you could possibly have is war. Yeah. It destroys everything. It destroys people, destroys things. Waste, you know, all the, the money that you spend fighting the war is a waste. You know, unless you, in, 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 you know, you, you fight it to win and things like that, but you have to sacrifice to do it. And you give up all the normal goods and services to do those things. Yeah. And so the, the destruction of those kind of things. So that's what's so worrying about Ukraine and the potential for China trying to go after Taiwan and things like that is, you know, they, 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 there's a lot of spending, but it's not spending on things you'd like it to be on. Yeah. It's spending it, on bombs. They don't create lasting values. Um, That's right. And so and so a lot of the countries that have these problems or whatever are ones where you have so much political uncertainty, you know, changes of regimes, and then you fight civil wars and things along those lines. And that kind of puts them way back from where they were before. Exactly. Becomes uh, disruptive. And also one another thing I'll just add uh, as we close, uh, they experience an issue of brain drain where all their talent is, ends up leaving that country. Definitely uh, so. Dr. Fishback, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also. Unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. 
I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.